So I've been referring to uh, this chapter and particularly this passage as a hard passage, a difficult passage. Um, But it's not that it is a difficult passage to understand. Uh, Rather, this is one of those passages that um, it's just difficult to reckon with. Uh, It it challenges our man-centered worldviews. Uh, it's the kind of passage that, that helps us have a higher view of God uh, than we would have had otherwise. It is right and it is good that we praise God openly and talk often about His mercy and His amazing grace. Uh, it is good that we love the saving work of God, uh, how He converts sinners how He brings them into His great love. It is right for us to love that, to sing about that, to rejoice in that. But our passage tonight reminds us that sometimes God does another kind of work. Sometimes, instead of graciously, mercifully bringing people to Himself, He does a hardening work. Uh, He will harden a heart. And here in Romans 11, Paul is going to explain that the reason so many ethnic Jews in his day were rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ is that God was hardening their hearts. And so just to be up front, we need to have our, our big boy pants and our big girl pants on as we, as we jump into these verses. Uh, we need to be ready to hear truths that maybe aren't um, the kind that we love the most, but we come to the Bible as a church remembering that every page of the Bible is given by God for our good. He loves us by telling us hard truths, like a good doctor, right Mark? Sometimes you, you care for the people best by telling them things that are hard, but that are good for them to know and right for them to hear. And so we're coming again to Romans 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 10, uh, but tonight our focus is verses 7 through 10. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 1. Romans 11, beginning in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. 
Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Well, as we think about these verses, we're going to ask three simple one-word questions. What, when, and why? What, when, and why? So first, the what. What are these verses, verses 7 through 10, describing? And the answer is, these verses are describing a partial hardening from God upon ethnic Israel. So again, these verses 7 through 10 are describing a partial hardening from God upon ethnic Israel. So look at verse 7, right? What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. So stop there. What was Israel seeking? Well, they were seeking a righteousness before God. Israel was seeking to be righteous in God's sight so that they could have God's blessing. Look back at Romans 9, verse 31. Romans 9, verse 31. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So what was Israel seeking? Israel was seeking to be righteous before God, to have the perfection that the law describes. Look a few verses later, chapter 10, verse 3. Romans 10, verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So what the nation of Israel, or in particular ethnic Israel, was after was a righteousness before God. And how did that work out for them? Well, Romans 11, verse 7, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So there was a remnant graciously chosen by God who did indeed obtain righteousness before God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Back in verse 1, Paul pointed to himself as exhibit A of that remnant, right? Paul said, I'm a Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, Paul has been declared righteous before God. All his sins have been forgiven. But Paul was the exception and not the rule. Because what happened to most ethnic Jews in his day? They were hardened against the gospel. Notice that Paul uses the passive tense. It isn't that they hardened themselves. At least that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that God hardened them. Salvation was open to them if they would just humble their hearts and believe on Christ. But instead of humbling their hearts, God hardened their hearts. I simply want to ask you, where are you in coming to grips with this truth? We simply cannot pick and choose which verses we want to believe. Uh, we cannot say, I really like John 3.16. I don't like that Romans 11.7. <laughs> I'm not going to have that in my, in my faith, right? John 3.16, I'm going to believe that. Romans 11.7, nah. Remember Thomas Jefferson? 
right? He cut out of his Bible the parts he didn't believe and just only kept in his Bible the parts that he liked. We can't be like that. The Bible is a unified book. The Bible has a unified message given to us by one and true God. The Bible is the kind of book that you either take all of it or none of it. And according to this verse, your God in heaven is a God who sometimes softens hearts and brings them to salvation. And sometimes he hardens hearts. He sits on his throne and he does as he pleases among the inhabitants of the earth. Now it helps to remember that all of God's ways are just. Remember, every single one of us deserves hell. And God does not owe any of us an opportunity to be saved. No one can shake the finger at God and say, you are being unjust. He is the creator. He has creator rights. The potter can do with the clay just as he chooses. Paul just explained all of that back in Romans 9. God is also the judge. And he has the rights of a supreme judge. He has the right to show mercy as he sees fit. And he has the right to condemn as he sees fit. And he's not arbitrary. He doesn't make his judgments on a whim. His every decision is good and wise and right. Now, I call this hardening on Israel a partial hardening. Why? Because it doesn't affect all the Jews. There is a remnant saved by grace. Most of the ethnic Jews in Paul's day are being hardened. Paul comes to them. He preaches in the synagogue at Corinth. He preaches in the synagogue at Ephesus. He preaches in the synagogue at Philippi. And what's happening there? He's rejected by his fellow kinsmen. Most of the Jews in his, days were, in his day were being hardened, but not all. It's a partial hardening. Remember, the, the, the Jews in the synagogue at Corinth, they rejected Paul. And so what did he do? He went to the house next door to the synagogue. And he started preaching to anybody who would come, Jew or Gentile. And do you remember what happened? The Jewish ruler of the synagogue ended up coming to Christ and being saved. So there were some. There were some that were of, of Paul's own kin who were coming to Christ. But, but they were a minority. It was a partial hardening. Now I'm saying that Paul has in mind here ethnic Jews... Because that seems to be the category he's using here. He's not thinking of, of the nation of Israel so much as he's thinking of Israel as those people biologically connected to Abraham. Uh, in nine, Romans 9, 1 through 5, we, we saw Paul grieving that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, were not believing. In other words, my relatives... My, my people, my family people, they're, they're not believing. At the beginning of Romans 11, this chapter, he talked about himself being an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. And so Paul is looking at ethnic Israel, these physical descendants. And, and remember, God made promises to their forefathers. God made promises to Abraham. God made promises to Isaac about how their descendants would, would honor God and serve God and be numerous. And, and now these physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac are rejecting the true Messiah. And all, Paul's explanation is, this is God's doing. What evidence does Paul have? Is Paul just saying this because he had a, an insight? <laughs> is Paul saying this because he just it's his opinion? No, scriptural 
evidence. In verses 8, 9, and 10, he quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 10. He quotes from Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. And he quotes from Psalm 69, 22 to 23. And I just have to say again how I continue to be astounded at how in Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, often seems like one of the deepest and most controversial portions of the Bible, and yet Paul seems to be carefully sustaining every single thing he says with references from the Old Testament. He is constantly using the Bible of his day, which was the Old Testament, to prove every single thing that he is saying. Yes, he could have simply said, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have apostolic authority. I am under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And under that authority, I'm speaking and you ought to believe it. He could have said that. He would have been okay to say that. And we would have been obligated to believe it. But in God's kindness, Paul goes further. He reasons with us. He shows us out of Old Testament texts that what he is teaching is not a new teaching. It's actually a very ancient teaching. It's what God had been saying was going to happen since all the way back in Deuteronomy, in Moses' day. There was hardening going on in the days of Moses. That's Deuteronomy 29. There was hardening going on when the Babylonians were coming as an instrument of God's justice against Israel. That's Isaiah 29. And there's hardening going on as he writes this letter. Look at the descriptions of this hardening that's come upon Israel. Uh, We have the words here, a spirit of stupor. Do you see that? A spirit of stupor. Uh, The idea is you're out of it, right? You're you're asleep. You're you're sleepwalking, maybe. You're you're not paying attention to what's going on. You're you're just in a stupor. Um, Have you ever had one of those moments while driving a long distance? when you suddenly realize that you've been out of it for a few minutes and you haven't even really been paying attention to the road? You ever had one of those moments where you suddenly snap back into reality and you're like, how did I get here? And you're thanking God you didn't die, right? This hardening effect means that folks are walking around utterly oblivious to spiritual things. They're out of it when it comes to spiritual realities. They're oblivious to the danger that their soul is in. They're oblivious to the signs that God is sending their way to warn them and to call them to repentance. They have eyes, but they're not seeing. They have ears, but they're just not hearing. Uh, Their life is short. Their bodies are aging. And there is a God before whom they must give an account And just looking around at creation and at themselves confirms that this is true, but with their eyes they just will not see. Maybe their Christian friends try and speak to them about the importance of knowing Christ. But with their ears, they're just they're hearing, but they're not they're not hearing. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to spiritual realities, these people are in a spirit of stupor. Is there anyone like that in here tonight? God forbid. Is there anyone like that in here? You sit in this church Sunday morning, Sunday night, week after week, and spiritual truths are coming your way. And you're you're hearing, but you're not hearing. You're you're oblivious. You're, You're in a state of stupor. For those whom God hardens, we're told that their table becomes a snare and a trap. Do you see that in verse 9? 
their table becomes a snare and a trap. The table is where the food sits, right? That's what a table does. It holds, it holds the food. In other words, what's being said here is that for those who are being hardened, it's the gods of the flesh that are keeping them in this stupor. In other words, what's keeping people from spiritual realities is that there's food to be eaten. There's lust to be indulged. There's mindless entertainment to be enjoyed. It is feeding the flesh that keeps them numb to the things of God. Even the good things of this life become a trap and a snare for them so that they do not come to know the better things, the best things. Uh, Making idols and mini-gods of the stuff of this world, their attention is never turned away from this world to the true God. We're told in verse 10 that those being hardened bend their backs forever. What does that mean? Bend their backs forever. Well, it's the picture of slaves under a heavy burden. I think what's being said in the context is that these Jews, Paul's kin, are being consigned to continue in their slavery to the law. It's like they were trying to use the law as a ladder to get to God, but then the law became their slave master, one that they could never please, and it's constantly beating them down for every slip and every fall. Rather than coming to know the freedom that Christ brings, right? Free from the law, oh, a happy condition. The Jews are continuing in their slavery to a law that they will never be able to keep. So that's the what? A partial hardening from God upon ethnic Israel. That leads us to the when question. When? We're only going to spend a moment here because the answer is very obvious. It's right there in the text. When is this hardening effect happening upon the Jewish people? Well, it was happening in Moses' day, and it was present in Paul's day, and it's present in our day. Uh, The verse says it's down to this very day. Uh, 2,000 years after Paul wrote this, we still find that the vast majority of ethnic Jews reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Will this ever end? Before Christ comes back, will there be a day when this hardening is removed from ethnic Israel? That's the crucial question of Romans 11. Um, There are kind of two ways to read this chapter. Some believe that Romans 11 teaches that the partial hardening from God upon ethnic Israel is one day going to come to an end. And that there's going to be a future day when the hardening is removed and ethnic Jews are going to return in mass to God. Uh, These folks believe that there's going to be an awakening in Israel's future. A great revival of sorts in which millions of Jews are all at one time going to find themselves coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. That one day this hardening is going to end. There are very good and godly people who read this chapter that way including many of my spiritual heroes. Um, As you'll see as we go along, that's that's not the view that I currently hold. Uh, Perhaps I'll change my mind by the time we're done with the chapter, but as of now, that's that's not the view uh, that I currently hold. How long will this hardening be upon ethnic Israel? We'll notice that the curse of God upon Israel, quoted in verse 10, says, Let them bend their backs forever pronouncement of the curse there is forever 
And that word makes me think that this is a hardening without end. That ethnic Jews as a majority will continue bending their backs as slaves to the law, trying to earn God's favor through their own works till the end of time. Now that leads us to our final question, and it's a really important question. Why? Why? This is the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the God who says that He loves to show mercy. This is the God who gave His Son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of our souls. Why would God harden so many ethnic Jews for so many centuries against their own Messiah? Why would He leave these people lost? I have two answers for you. Uh, First, it may sound obvious, but it is important to say, so I'm going to say it. It's part of God's sovereign purpose. God has the right to do with His creation as He pleases. He's working out a plan. And in the end of all history, there will be a beautiful tapestry of history that we will look back on and we will see how it glorified Him. It will delight His people for all eternity At the end of the day, God's sovereign choice is behind the hardening of Israel. He's working out his plan. But that being said, there is a second answer in our passage. It's in verse 9. It's a word our culture does not like anymore. It's the word retribution. Retribution. Remember, Israel always had the greatest privileges of any nation on earth. There was no nation on earth that had received more grace from God than Israel. Romans 9, just go back there. Romans 9 verses 3 through 5. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them to who? The Israelites belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In other words, of all the people in the world who ought to trust and obey the true God, it would be the people of Israel. These are the people that God took out of Egypt and rescued them. These are the people that God called His own Son. And He treated this nation as a father. This is the nation that had the tabernacle and then the temple with the very special presence of God among them. Not among the Assyrians, not among the Babylonians, not among the Greeks or the Romans. Little Israel had the presence of Almighty God in their midst. God didn't make a covenant with the Romans and say, you will be my people and I will be your God. He didn't do that with the Hittites, the Amorites, or the Amalekites that we talked about this morning, only with Israel. Did God make this covenant, the the covenant that was given to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob? We have the covenant later with David. Israel had the law and worship, the priesthood, pointing them in a thousand ways to the Messiah that was coming. And in every sacrifice... And every detail of the clothing of the priests 
And every law that was given to order their national life, Israel was being cared for by God, served by God, loved by God, taught by God, and being prepared for the day when the Messiah that He had coming for them, when He would come. And yet, Israel's response, not just one time, but over and over and over again throughout the entire history of the nation, was unbelief and disobedience and chasing after other gods. The nation of Israel acted as a whorish woman, giving herself to every other deity except the one true God to whom she rightly belonged. And so, God gave Israel over to her unbelief. Israel's sin reaped greater hardness of heart and greater depths of depravity. As Isaiah taught so well in the book of Isaiah, the more the people of Israel worshipped deaf idols and dumb idols, the more deaf and dumb the people became to spiritual realities. They became like the idols of wood and stone and gold that they served. And then there was the greatest privilege of all. Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world not as an American, not as a Russian, not as a Brit. <laughs> he came in as an Israelite. He was one of the people of Israel. And he fulfilled one by one by one by one the prophecies of Israel's scriptures. Matthew in his gospel just shows it. It's like every paragraph Matthew says, Jesus did this and it fulfilled this. Jesus did this and it fulfilled this. Jesus was a living display of the goodness and beauty that was pointed to by every law God had ever given Israel. It was Israel's law come alive in Jesus Christ. Indeed, it was the very character of God, the glory of God. It was God. Come to them in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus went through Israel, he healed their sick. He raised their dead. He taught them with tenderness. He taught them with love. And how did Israel respond? They killed him. They killed him. And so this was the apex. This was the climax of centuries of Israel's sin. The hardness of heart, the rebellion had been building century after century and it came to a head in the murder of the Son of God. And therefore, after Christ was risen from the dead and the gospel was preached, God hardened the hearts of Israelites as judgment upon that people for their sin. The, the psalm that Paul quotes here, Psalm 69, is a messianic psalm. So, for example, in verse 9 of Psalm 69, David says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. And in John 2.12, we find that applied to Jesus as he cleanses the temple. Right? As Jesus is, is driving out the money changers, John says that Jesus was fulfilling Psalm 69. Zeal for your house has consumed me. The psalm goes on in verse 9 and says, The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, this, this person in Psalm 69 is saying to God, God, the same reproaches, the same hostility that people have towards you, it's coming towards me. And later in Romans 15, Paul was going to quote this as a reference to Jesus. Psalm 69 says in verse 21, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. 
And in the Gospel of Luke, we see that fulfilled as Christ is offered sour wine as he hangs on the cross. So this psalm that Paul quotes right here in Romans 11 is all about Jesus. And these words that he quotes from the psalm in verses 9 and 10 are the words of the Messiah himself in that psalm against the ones who gave him sour wine to drink. In other words, these words are the words of the Messiah against those who opposed him, against those who reproached him. And so Paul was making this connection. He sees in Psalm 69 that the hardening on Israel in his own day is a fulfillment of this prophecy. That it was because of how Israel treated her Messiah when he came that they are now being given over to darkened eyes and bent backs. And of course, Jesus taught this. Jesus taught this. Remember the parable about the wicked tenants and what they did when the owner of the vineyard sent his own son to them? I'm not going to tell the whole parable. Just listen to the end from Matthew 21 and hear the application that Jesus makes. This is Jesus speaking to his fellow Jews in the last days of his life. And Jesus says, But when the tenants saw the son... They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, oh, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And then Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In other words, the the Jews prophesied their own destruction. (laughs) Jesus said to them, what will the master of the vineyard do when he comes and sees that the tenants killed his own son? And they said, oh, he will kill those miserable wretches. And Jesus says, that's right, I'm talking about you. That a day is coming when the kingdom of God that has been located here, headquartered in Israel for all these years, the kingdom of God is going to the world and being taken away from you. As an ethnic people. What about those who stumble over Christ Jesus? Jesus says the stone that they stumble over is the cornerstone. And that it crushes them. In other words, Jesus says, I will either be your savior or I will be your executioner. That's a hard word. It's a hard word. It's tough, but it's true. It is Jesus who pours out the mercy of God on all who repent and believe. But guess who's going to be sitting on the throne on the day of judgment? Guess who's going to be pouring out the wrath of God on all those who will not have him? It's the same Christ. This is why Jesus could say you're either for me or against me. There is no middle ground. You cannot have Jesus as something less than a savior, but also less than an executioner. He's either your savior, redeemer, bridegroom of your soul, or he's your enemy and your executioner. There is no compromise when it comes to the goodness and the worth of Jesus Christ. 
What you do with Jesus determines everything. And the Jews rejected him. Remember what Christ said in Matthew 11 to the Jewish cities where he had done so much and yet the people there still would not repent and believe? We're told he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And he said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum. Capernaum. Jesus lived in Capernaum, in Peter's house, right there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. This was his headquarters of ministry. Capernaum was the town that had more of of the glory of God in their midst than probably any other town in the history of the world. Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Why? Because they had been given the greatest privileges. Jesus himself walking their streets. And those who receive the greatest privileges bear the greatest responsibility. These are not my favorite sermons to preach. (laughs) It's just not. But we're called to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What do we do with all this? How How do we apply the truth that God hardens people's hearts? Well, first, let us see our dependence upon God for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and obey. It is God who gives light And if he doesn't give it, we will be forever in darkness. Second, since that is true, let us humble ourselves and pray. Let us acknowledge how much we need God's work in our lives. And let us seek God, pursue God, and say, God, make sure my eyes are open. God, don't let my ears be clogged up. I want to hear We need this gift from God at the beginning of the Christian life. We need it in order to come to Christ. But folks, we still need this gift every day. We need open eyes and open ears right now. The young man who has been a Christian for one week and the elderly woman who's been a Christian for 80 years both need this. What do we need? We need the softening work of God in our hearts. We need the humbling work of God in our hearts. The the Word of God will do little good if God doesn't till our hearts and make our hearts ready to receive that word. If God is not working in our hearts, the warnings of the Bible will not move us to action. The promises and encouragements of the Bible, they won't comfort us. And they won't strengthen us. Like seeds bouncing on pavement with no soil to sprout in. The word of God will have no benefit and produce no fruit if the soil of our heart hasn't been made soft. And so pray. Every Sunday, as you come to Sunday school, as you come to preaching, pray. Every morning or evening, as you open up your Bible, pray. When you're going to meet with Christian friends for encouragement and counsel, pray. And ask God to make your heart ready that you can receive the benefit of his word. Third, 
let us realize that if we choose to disbelieve or disobey any word from God today, He may choose to harden us against His word in the future. In other words, this is why it's so dangerous to disbelieve or disobey any part of the Bible. Anytime you knowingly choose to disbelieve or disobey any part of the Bible, anytime you act in presumption, you can almost guarantee the result is going to be a hardening effect on your life. In other words, it's going to be easier to disbelieve and disobey tomorrow because I did it today. And it's going to be even easier the next day. Right? We see this all the time. Folks who, who miss a week of church. And then you know what? It got kind of easier to miss the next week. And then it missed the next week. And then it missed, and suddenly, they've gone years. They never intended to be out of church for years. This is the nature of sin. Uh, or, if I disbelieve or disobey this portion of Scripture, it'll make it a little bit easier to disbelieve and disobey the next part, and the next portion, and the next portion. God's curse on willful disobedience is the hardening of hearts. God's curse on willful disobedience is the hardening of hearts. Every command He gives us, He gives us in love. Every word He speaks to us is for our benefit and eternal welfare. Every word comes from His fatherly hand. To turn against our Father's love is to spurn Him. It is to reject His care for us. If hostility towards God is what you want, you will find that He gives it to you. As your heart grows cold. And so Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. Let us maintain tender consciences. Let us watch over our hearts. Being careful to take everything seriously from the word of God. When we find that we've not been believing. Or not been obeying something in the Bible. Let us be quick to repent. Let us be quick to confess before God. Let us be quick to embrace His forgiveness and let us resolve with intentionality to not disbelieve or disobey anymore. Let us run hard after obedience and let us fight disobedience with all our might. Fourth and finally, let us pray for those around us who are in a hardened state. Let us pray for those around us who are in a hardened state. We have so many people around us, including some that we love dearly, who seem to become agitated or even angry if we start bringing up religious things around them. A friend told me sometime back about a family member who, every time they start talking about the things of God, that person finds an excuse to leave the room. It's like they just, they just don't want to hear it. And so they'll, they'll leave the table, they'll, they'll find something else to do and talk turns to God. Mount Herman, let us pray for those people in our lives. Let us pray that the God who has the hearts of people in His hands, let us pray that He will soften their hearts graciously. We can't change their hearts, but our God can. And He loves to honor the earnest, sincere, persistent prayers of His people. And so we should pray.